It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Welcome back, friends and followers of Goat Gab. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, Cameron Jodlowski. I'm your other co-host, Laura Warren Hughes. We're excited to be with you this week, and we are really excited to welcome back one of our favorite guests to have, Dr. Ed. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. This time, it's a little different having Dr. Ed on, as we are not in the same room, and we are managing two different herds. Yeah, this is a very different situation now with um, Cameron and Catherine having their herd now located in um, southern Wisconsin and being about two and a half hours away and I having my goats here um, and not having the help around the farm. So it has been a real change of pace, but I'm very excited um, for all the possibilities of what this means for our two herds. So I have a question, guys. Because you now have uh, your herd split in two places, does that mean that each herd can grow bigger? Cameron, I'll defer this to you first. <laughs> um, no. So that, that's a funny question you asked that there because um, I just um, – the, by the time this podcast drops, I will have gotten rid of, rid of a goat um, because she has some breeding problems. And by breeding problems, I mean, she cannot be bred because she has no cervix and she is a hermaphrodite. So, um, I, I am actually thinning, uh, thinning my herd by 20% as I'll say there, um, because I could only have five and that's the number I've promised myself to keep my Alpine herd to, um, so we can focus on the togs for my wife, of course. Um, so I have a pretty strict number there, five and a buck, and I'll just leave it at that, I guess. And uh, dad, uh, for you, but Cameron, I, I, um, had a doe that was having breeding problems and I took her North to, um, the veterinarian's house, uh, to get bread. And we haven't exactly decided she may be your, your fifth goat now, um, until she freshens. So we'll have to see. I did see your Facebook post today with the pictures of her and she looks lonely like she misses me. So that was a little hard to see. I still think that she could come live in Missouri and be happy here too. We might have to make her a date with Transova, right? (laughs) We might have to do that. Yes. (laughs) I'm just teasing. I won't take her, but you know, she's, she is a favorite of mine. So, you know, she should know that she's loved by many. How's that? That's good. She's not loved by any Toggenbergs here. I will tell you that. So um, and you can gladly you can gladly have her ba- back. Um, she makes very strange noises in the pen when she is fighting. So, which is all the time. Yes, oh, no. she's a fighter. She <laughs> she's is just a, fighter. a typical alpine. She is yeah. she is a really typical alpine. oh bless her heart. So, um, what else is going on in your farm, Ed? Well, we breeding season's going pretty well. Unfortunately, my um, one of my two AIs came back in heat this week, so that was sad. I had to make a, a little bit of a pivot there because I thought the first uh, breeding was pretty good. Now, not having Cameron here, though, I had to have um, Colleen come out and help me hold the goat, and so I was, I was disappointed for her. She did a great job holding her as I artificially <laughs> inseminated her that I thought – this really needs to take and it was seemed like a good breeding and it didn't. And so that was saddened. Um, but just now starting to look at getting the kids bred and I've had just about everybody in heat now and not too many strange things. So that's, that's good. Um, I, I think we'll see when all those kids come and I'm by myself, how I'm feeling about it. I know it's almost like, you know, you close your eyes and just breed them and think that's five months from now. That's five months from now. I don't have to worry about it for five months. And then it starts creeping up closer on the calendar. And you're like, oh, I've got to pay the piper here pretty quick. That's kind of scary. 
It is scary, yes. So I actually put my first four goats that were confirmed pregnant on my calendar because that's what I do because I'm super um, organized, I guess. I'm very calendar-driven as a person. So I put them on there, and they were all due back-to-back-to-back days. So I was like, well, I can conveniently induce all four of them at the same time for the same weekend. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that, especially after um, Dr. Ed and I success last year with inducing a lot of goats and having um, uh, a easier kidding season. It's never easy, but easier. I would I would agree wholeheartedly with you, Cameron. And it just so happens that one weekend last year, I induced six of them to kid. It was the weekend that Cameron was moving out and he and his mom had taken off with a load of uh, stuff up north. And I was stuck here and it was just kids after kids after kids. And the next thing I knew, I had the whole basement full of 12 new babies. And I was like, oh, this is what it's going to be like by myself next year. But um, inducing really does help those people that are really busy. And so I I found it to be a really positive thing last year. And we didn't have any negative aspects from it. And again, I think that also goes because Catherine helped us out with the protocol to use and um, it seemed to work very effectively. So the key, my friends, is not to ever use the oxytocin, which we didn't use last year and we didn't have any problems. So that one time when I used oxytocin, um, I had some issues. So um, I think that's really the key. I would, I would agree with you on that. I, I think oxytocin is one of those drugs that you should have on hand if you need it and also really understand what it does and, you know, have guidance from your vet on when to use it. Like, um, you know, post kidding, I'll use oxytocin, but um, as an OB nurse, I've come very quickly to respect what it can do. And sometimes it's a pretty ugly thing what it can do. So I would, I would echo that, you know, just be really careful with oxytocin as a drug and probably not use it for inducing goats. I I just think that's kind of a scary thing. I would tell you guys an oxytocin joke right now, but it'd be a real letdown. (laughs) Okay. That was grown worthy, Cameron. That was, oh my gosh. I'll have to, I'll have to use that at work tomorrow. Oh, I'll totally take that to work tomorrow. That's great. Uh, uh, but Laurel, what's happening at your place? Uh, we've done a few breedings, um, had, have had a lot of discussions and I know Cameron, you've been on, on the tail of, of some of those two on who I'm going to breed this, this little spotlight sale doe to. That's always kind of fun, you know? So, uh, you know, you want to have just the perfect suitor for her. And um, just wrapping up the last few breedings and really basically all I've got are a a couple of older does that I haven't seen come into heat yet and then some kids. But um, I'm not going to say that my first AI passed over. She was doing heat today, but we're not going to talk about it. So um, that's always kind of fun. Got our four judges secured for our spring show. So um, for those of you all that are show chairman and I know, Ed, you and Cameron have a big six ring show there. Um, it is just a challenge to get judges for certain weekends. And um, I was reminded once again, you really probably have to get your judges two years out. Yes, I, I will agree with that. I got a text message um, on Friday that one of the judges at a show in Idaho had canceled for Memorial Day and they needed a judge. And I was like, oh, I, I'm already booked for that that weekend there. So um, it, it truly is there, but again, as, as a judge that does, will verbally commit to two years out, but not right. Put a contract or pen to paper. Uh, those shows also have to remember that, that as judges, things may change in a judge's life over a 24 month period. So, um, also, you know, be familiar with that as well there. Yeah. How do you do that, Ed? Well, oftentimes when I'm asked and I know I'm not going to be able to judge, I'll just say, consider me for the next year. Um, I would like to sometimes be able to tell them to go ahead and pencil me in. But again, so many things change. And since I'm going to be retired this time next year, I don't, or during 
judging season next year, it, it's like I have to think. I'm not sure. It's kind of funny that you say this because I just got a message tonight about judging Labor Day. And my initial reaction was, well, I don't have anything on my calendar. Um, but then I also have to make sure that, you know, it, 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 we don't have anything planned as a family that weekend that I'm not sure of about right now. And so I want to make sure that we, we've got, you know, the the, the uh, overall best plan for me being away and getting somebody to do chores. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like next year. So um, all of those are, are questions that I have. So, you know, the hardest thing is getting that chore help, you know, when, when Cameron was around, if I was gone, he would do chores or if he was gone, I would do chores and it wasn't a problem, but um, I've been through two, um, chore people now. And my second one seems like he might stick, but he is also probably going to college. So, um, I don't know what that will mean for next year. So we'll have to see. On my farm here, we're, uh, breeding. We brought our first kids today here, which we'll talk a little bit, uh, later on there. Um, and then there's kind of the ups and downs of breeding season. We've got some goats that, um, both on the Alpine side and the Toggenberg side are, difficult to breed um catching heats or just constant cycling or we think they're in heat but they're not standing for the buck and then you're like what do i do here do we just put them in the trailer like like lots of breeding season woes kind of ups and downs there on that um just just difficult times what laura i'm gonna ask you what do you do if a goat isn't going to stand for the buck you do anything special or no? <laughs> We had that tonight and I, you know, there have been years where I've pretty much made the doe stand for the buck. And then I always feel terrible about that. You know, the does get scared and the bucks, you know, get very frustrated because the does all over the place, you know, and not wanting to do what they're doing. And um, so I've done that. Sometimes it's stuck. Sometimes that doe will be back in heat again a week later. I'm like, Oh, that's why she wasn't standing because she really wasn't in heat. So I'm more of a, if it's not going to work easily, you know, if, if both parties aren't interested in it, we're just going to take a step back and try to get it the next time. Um, the only time I get really wigged out about that is when it's the end of um, November and I'm like, I don't want May kids and, you know, get to that point. So I may have psyched myself out. Because I built myself a spreadsheet in Google Sheets where I plugged in the formulas of like when this goat is going to be at 21 days, when this goat is going to be at 42 days, when the goat's going to be at 30 days, and then when the goat's going to be at 150 days. So I look at all these numbers and I get I get a little scared sometimes when I think about, okay, if this goat comes back to heat, she's not going to be in heat again until November 20th or something like that. Yes, and I do so the that, same thing. I'm like, oh, kids. right, right. And then you're faced with, okay, so do I try to short cycle them to bring them in? And if I do that, then what if that really screws up things hormonally and I don't, you know, want to get into that kind of a mess? I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer that, on that. That's a really good point because I kind of had that happen. Um, I had a couple of does that were supposed to have cycles right as I was leaving for convention. And so... Um, I let 10 days lapse and then I laced all three of them. And the one doe came in just like clockwork. She was one I wasn't AIing. Um, she came in just like clockwork, bred her, no problems. The other one came in heat about um, a day later and she was one I was AIing and I AIed her and had a, we had a pretty successful AI, I hope. Um, the third one didn't do anything. And <laughs> I, I, I was I was panicked again. I consulted my uh, my daughter in law, who's the veterinarian, and said, "What do I do?" And she said, "Well, wait till this Saturday and lace her again." And I came home on on Friday night or Thursday night, and she was in heat um, and just had a really good heat. But I didn't want to AI on that, so I just bred her naturally. Um, but it's one of those things where what what do you do? It's like a, a question. I I had another kid that I thought I had seen a cycle. 21 days ago. And so this week I thought I was seeing that uh, the next cycle, which would have been 21 days. Um, and she would, she would twitch her tail a little bit and I got the buck out It's really kind of a strange thing because she was really scared of the buck. The first buck I got out didn't want anything to do with her because, um, she wouldn't stand still. Um, 
but I got out a young buck who would get the job done. And he did twice. Um, and she would stand, you know, when, when he mounted her, but it just took a little while um, to get that done. I still don't feel a hundred percent about that. That's probably one of those question does that I have that we'll have to watch really carefully. Yeah. I know how that goes because then you've got, you know, you've got a buck that you're saying, well, he was willing. So was she in heat or, Hmm, this is a young buck. He would breed a fence post. So can I really go by that or not? So I don't know. I have had some young bucks breed some fence posts this year as well. So, um, you know, and there's always this looming thing in the back of my mind, especially with the recent advent of the he, she is, or the it, as I'll call it as the hermaphrodite here that I recently had is like, is she viable to breed? You know, do, do I even breed her? You know what I'm saying there? And I guess that's when you go on with the scope and you take a, you take a look under the hood, as I always say. Right. I think anytime you have those does that you're like, why the heck is she not getting bread? And, and um, you have to sit back and think, okay, maybe there is an issue here that I just haven't seen. She looks normal from the outside, but maybe there are some issues inside there and nobody likes those either. Whew. I think the other light of that story, Cameron, is that that particular doe we bred as a kid and then 42 days after she had been bred, she cycled again. And then um, we pregnancy tested her and she came back that she was bred. And then the day came and went. And lo and behold, she was shown this year as a dry yearling because structurally everything outwardly looked very normal. Um, and we just thought it was just one of those things where she was just going to stay a dry yearling because, because she, she hadn't, she hadn't conceived and we've had that before. Um, so I think that's, I think you're right. That's probably going through your mind, which is what goes through my mind about this dough that I had to, um, hold so much. It's like, is there something kind of funky? And, and really with that particular dough that I'm talking about that, that I just had the situation with, she has grown so fast all year long she probably weighs about 125 pounds as she's a January kid. Um, and so it, it's all kind of scaring me. Um, and then I said, well, she looks normal. So I guess if worse comes to worse, she'll just be a dry yearling next year. A big one at that, but she'll be a dry yearling next year, which <laughs> kind of goes along with what we're going to be talking about tonight. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, thank goodness you can do that, but. Yeah, this this is that's going to segue into our topic really well. Before we hit there, though, do we have some ad good news that we want to talk about a little bit? Just just a smidgen here. Um, again, we saw a cry from um, the president of ADGA, Mark Baden, asking members to um, go ahead and mail in thank you cards as well to the ADGA office. So please do that again. It is so important that we mail in the cards not bog down the support system for that as well there. So that is very important. And just a reminder that if you do want to apply for an ADGA committee, it does need to be done by October 31st. And those need to go to support at adga.org. So the email box that was getting flooded with thank yous is also supposed to be handling committee applications as well. So let's not bog down those email boxes there with thank yous and let's use the proper channels there. I, I just think this is also an appropriate time to to recognize the work that um, our EC is currently doing. Um, it's a pretty daunting task. I know that we've had um, at least three individuals from our EC down in Spindale, boots on the ground, just trying to get a handle on what the situation looks like. And there, there's obviously a lot of work to be done there. And just remember that they need our support and, and just positive encouragement um, to, to continue doing the great work that they're doing. I, I feel so positive about um, their efforts right now. And um, I, I think you, you see those echoes on Facebook as well from people who are saying, we really appreciate the work that you're doing, but I, I don't think we can tell them enough because it's, it's, it's a difficult job right now. Yeah. Our EC and the office staff too. I mean, they're all they're all really showing how vested they are in keeping Aga um, moving forward and fixing the issues that we've got, and you know, truly making Aga the most trusted dairy goat 
um, registry that there is. And so I, I echo what you said, Ed, thank you so much to our EC. Thank you to our office folks. And, um, you know, let's remember to continue giving them, them support and grace and um, cheers as they keep on making the changes that are going to get things re- back on the right track, I think. And also director Chris Owen was, was at the um, ADGA office helping out as well. So we appreciate um, anybody who's making those efforts to help out our staff. So I really um, appreciate all their efforts. One last thing before we dive into the topic here is I want to engage with some internet banter here and, and see the straw thaw debate. I, Laura, I know you and I talked about it. Dr. Ed, did you see any uh, content on Facebook about the straw debate? The straw thawing debate. I did not. I have not seen anything about this. So, so please engage me with what's happening. <laughs> so I thought it was great. What? what <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it's crazy, but there is a debate on Facebook and how you thaw your semen out for AI. And Laura, let me know if I'm wrong here. And there are two teams here. I mean, it's really like a, a, a Bella situation between Team Jacob and Team Edward here. You're either uh, <laughs> Team 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 Thaw uh, Body Thaw, which means using your heat in your body in order to thaw it there, or Team Water Bath Thaw, where you're using again the standard water bath procedure that I used growing up and, and Laura does as well. And Dr. Ed does as well in order to thaw the straw. So um, there, there was all of the debates going in Facebook world. Um, and I really wanted to make some t-shirts of which team uh, you are on, but I did not. Some people are very rabid that their, that their um, process is the right one and, you know, works well and they don't know why anybody would do it another way. And I'm just kind of like, you do you, I'll do me. Um, when, for me, when I'm when I'm headed down to breed a doe, I'm usually carrying enough stuff in in my hands and want to keep enough stuff that I have warm. That trying to worry about a precious straw of semen is just the last thing that I want to do. So, um, you know, that's why I, my method works fine for me. But boy, there are some people who are just. Why would you ever want to do it in the water? You know, I've had straws explode by putting it in the warm water and, and I have to absolutely have had that happen, but it was, it was just funny to read. What did your, what does your vet wife say, Cameron? Um, the doctor, the doctor says the water bath thaw, and she's pretty much in agreement with me about thawing it out there. Because the one thing I really like and she likes about it is that it keeps it at a consistent temperature there when you're thawing it out and you're thawing it out equally compared to putting it in your armpit or – and this is going to be a little – maybe a little inappropriate for some of our younger listeners. But uh, in your under boob, as I heard that as well there, uh, to thaw the straws uh, might not be as consistent uh, in dethawing the straw at the same rate across it there. Huh. I can't even imagine – I can't even imagine doing that. I can't imagine. I don't think I want to. I mean, I don't think I want to do it. But again, you know, I, one of my good friends is a body thaw person and she has fantastic rates with her AI. So I, you know, I, again, I think to each their own, it's just funny how people are so passionate about what they think the right answer is. Yeah, I agree with you, Laura. Let each person do what works best for them and let them, um, you know, utilize their method. And if they have success that way, they should do it that way. Now I will say after I load my gun, so, you know, after I put the straw in the gun, put the sheath over the gun, um, it does get tucked down against my warm body as I carry it down to the barn. Cause that's about the only way that I have to keep it warm, but um, it, it doesn't stay there. I mean, it only stays there long enough to get it outside if it's cold outside. So anyway, but I, I don't know. I, everybody has their own methodology that they use. We, we have this little thing that we do, a little ritual when we artificially inseminate that we pull the straw out and we let the dough sniff it when they're done. There is no support, any data out there to show that that does anything more, but it's something that we've done for a long period of time. And it's just kind of funny. We actually sometimes send each other pictures um, of letting the dough sniff the straw <laughs> just, just to say that we've completed that task. I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. 
So does does it take more often when you do that? No. (laughs) You know, I will tell you that I have about the same conception rate when those that don't sniff the straw uh, and they also sniff the straw. So because I never do it, you know, my does that don't get don't settle sniff the straw, but my does that do settle sniff the straw as well. So it's just a weird ritual. I don't know. I mean, that's how you know your AI and goats in the group checks we have. I think it's wonderful. I learned it many years ago from Brian Heiser, and um, he came over when we were just starting to AI and helped me AI a goat, and he showed me that it was something that he did. And it's funny because sometimes the does will curl up their lip with it. I don't know if there's any um, data to support that a curled up lip helps the inception, but whatever. (laughs) Very interesting. Okay, we'll have to do a non-scientific um, experiment on that. Well, uh, speaking about scientific or non-scientific here, uh, let's talk about yearlings, uh, which is our topic today here, dry yearlings versus milking yearlings. And some people have no scientific reason or method to their dry yearling picking out madness, while others think a little bit well, meticulously about it here. And let's let's talk about it here. Um I, I guess if I, going on the team theme here, um, if I had to pick a team, I will tell you that my biases lie in the milking yearling debate and the and freshening the goat. Um, but we will continue on why I think like that a little later on. And when we were coming up with this topic, we we all of us recognize the fact that you know, we are standard breed breeders, and this question, this topic may have a little bit of difference for our Nigerian friends. Um, and uh, we, we had hoped to get a Nigerian breeder on here with us, but it didn't work out. So that might be something in the future we might like to look at again. But, um, you know, again, our perspective is with standard breed goats, but I would think a lot of these questions that we consider as we decide whether or not an animal should be bred to freshen as a yearling or not, could apply to to Nigerians. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. So let's talk about the dry yearling side here. And I will go ahead and I will ask um, Dr. Red to cut us out here. Why do you keep does dry or what's your thought process behind keeping them dry? Well, let me start with historically um, because I've gone every which way possible with dry yearlings and I've, I've changed my uh, thinking over the years, I used to not like to have dry yearlings. I used to like to breed everybody because that gave me a chance to know what my yearlings were. I make my decision, you know, after they all had freshened of who I was going to keep and who I wasn't going to keep, um, and that just seemed to be the easiest thing to do. And I, I do think that growing up, when you and your brothers were younger, I did always try to keep a doe for each of you so that you'd have a dry yearling to show at the county fair. I mean, that's that's kind of strange, but it was like, and I didn't really care who that was. Now, fast forward to where we are today. um, There is a method to the madness that I use with dry yearlings. If if I'm going to keep a doe dry, she definitely needs to be uh, very strong in her general appearance because um, I know that, that, that's going to be important to her. She also has to be a doe that has, has been growing pretty uh, effectively throughout the year so that I know that she's going to grow, but there is, there's a little bit more with that. And I'll I'll touch on that a little bit later, but I I really think that it's just important that you you pick out those does that are, that are the right does for, for um, being dry yearlings. And currently I'm sitting with um, about seven, I think I have seven doe kids yet to breed. Um, and I still haven't decided completely which ones I'm going to leave dry and which ones I'm going to breed. And I think it's going to kind of hinge on what happens in the next um, cycle of them coming in or even the following cycle. Because sometimes if you've got a later doe, um, you definitely know that you want to keep her dry because she's a little bit younger than everybody else. I also like to kind of sometimes pick does that don't have dry legs um, because that that's really your reason for showing a, a dry yearling is to try to get a leg on her. 
And if your dryerling already has a, a leg as a kid, then what's the beauty in, in showing that? I, I guess to show a beautiful goat, of course, but beyond that, I'm not sure what else is. So that, that's a little bit of my theory behind it. So I have a question for you on that question there. Um, does it matter if you're planning to go to nationals the next year or not? That obviously factors into it. And it factors in with the fact of whether or not you have that one that you've bred some other does and you might have a, a junior get. And that's kind of That kind of happened last year um, in terms of with our, with our alpine dry yearlings, the does that we were going to keep dry. Um, we had a, a junior kid who did exceedingly well last year. She was the second place junior kid at national show. And she was um, champion at a couple other fairs and best in show, I think at three fairs. And so I, I thought because she was, um, she was a later April kid, I thought, well, maybe what we ought to do is we ought to just keep her dry and show her. But as I started watching her growth pattern, I noticed that she kind of slowed down a little bit, not being bred. And so we ended up breeding her for May and she picked up and grew after we bred her. And I found that with my Alpines, that that typically happens, um, that once you breed them, they start growing a little bit more, especially those that might have been a little bit um, you know, younger or, or not quite as, as large as some of the other does. So um, we ended up keeping that doe, uh, we ended up breeding that doe, and then we kept one of our March kids dry. That dry kid did not have a leg, but I really liked her, and I thought, this is the best doe to keep dry. And so it, it turned out that she had an exceptional um, show year this year, and it, I, I told myself over and over again that that was really a good choice to make in terms of how we did that. We also had a May kid last year, which was really easy to keep her dry. Um, and she was not growing very well at all. And boy, by the time that the spring came around, she is really big and, and tall and, and had a great show season this year as well. So you brought up something that we have found too, you know, to me, I, and, and I'm going to say this too, I've always kind of been biased against keeping does as a dry yearling. Um, I've always blamed that on the fact that I was a Nubian breeder first. And so uh, you'll love my Nubians, but man, I'll tell you what, A, they grow big, B, they grow fat. They really like to put the pounds on when they're dry. And um, I just didn't have enough consistency with how my Nubians turned out that I really wanted to put that extra year of feed into them just to have them not turn out. So, you know, I I'm sure that other Nubian breeders don't have those kind of issues that I did, but that, that started me out thinking if there's any reason, not, if there's any way that I cannot keep this animal dry, I'm going to go ahead and freshen it. Um, but we've kind of done the same thing as what you'd mentioned. If a doe is a little bit on the smaller side and especially those late April or May kids, um, I pretty much don't want to go ahead and breed them because I really hate April and May kids. <laughs> and so, you know, I feel like if I'm going to breed them to freshen as yearlings, I have to keep them kidding that late again. And that just perpetuates that cycle. But I've also seen the same thing that you mentioned, Ed, was kids that maybe are a little bit smaller. If I go ahead and breed them, they'll they really take off with growth. I don't know if it's the hormones from pregnancy, if it's the fact that, you know, they, they have an incentive to eat a little bit more because they're hungry. I, I don't know what it is, but it seems like that breeding them almost is, is the opposite, opposite of what you might think that if you keep them dry, they're going to grow better. And that's not necessarily the case. One thing I've really pondered about when I look at the kids out in my barn is that, and I, People know this about me is I don't own a weight tape. I've, I actually went to look for one one day and I couldn't even find one at my farm. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of an eyeball and kind of a feel. And we have talked about a little bit about, you know, getting your instincts as a dairy goat breeder and just being able to determine what the feel is there. And, and some of it happens from mistakes that you make on the farm as well. And some of it's just watching and understanding how lines mature there as well. But I, I look at this goat and I, you know, Laura kind of hit the nail on the head, late April, early May kids, May kids, they probably need to be kept dry. But I've got one where I, she's putting on so much weight right now that it really concerns me to breed, to not breed her because 
as a judge, you see it all the time and you see the fat dry yearlings and I hate the fat dry yearlings and I don't want to be the judge that, you know, comes into the ring with the fat dry yearlings, which is probably going to happen at some point, but then also be the judge that knocks fat dry yearlings down because they're fat dry yearlings. So, so I recognize that she is getting more rotund right now. So she is a good candidate for breeding, even though she is a later kid. I think that's a really good theory to have. I, I too am kind of experiencing that here with a, one of our junior sables and she was slated to not be bred. And now the more I look at her, she's growing so fast and she's getting so much depth and, and body to her um, that I know probably breeding her would be uh, the best decision. Um, it's just, I'm, I'm kind of weighing the pros and cons right now. And a lot will determine, you know, like I said, those next couple of heat cycles where I kind of feel like I am, whether or not I can breed them. I don't, I don't, I like my goats to, to kid anywhere from the beginning of February to like the first part of April. I, I love that. And I, historically I love them to all be done, but I always have that group of does that are, for whatever reason, they came back in heat or, or um, they were younger. So they did get, you know, bred to have kids at the end of April or the beginning of May. And that's just the reality with goats. Um, sometimes you're just glad they got bred. So do you do those breedings and just know in the back of your head, I'm probably not keeping this kid. What Whatever this doe has, I'm not going to keep it because it's going to be jo- born May 25th. And I that's just. I, it's just too late. I know I'm not going to be happy with this kid. It depends on it. It really depends on what it's out of. I mean, um, in some cases you delight because if you go to the national show, you say, Hey, I got a junior yearling. Yay. Good for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the other, but the other side is that kid may not grow as quickly as fast because you've got all the other kids you know, moved in the other pen. And, and that is sometimes a little problematic as well. You know, then this kid isn't getting the same care that my, that, that kids that when it was this size got. And so that can creep in and be a little bit of a, a mystery as well. Um, and that's what I think happened with our dry yearling, uh, our junior dry yearling two years ago as an Alpine kid. She just, she just had to fend for herself as a kid and she didn't, she got watered down milk at the point when she should have been getting just straight milk. And so she didn't grow big and strong. And then voila, um, she had the genes to grow big and strong and she did. And so that, that's just kind of the, the case of where, you know, just looking at it circumstantially, how it all works out. I think you also have to keep in mind, we as breeders get tired. And I know, I know that there are some times where I'm just like, oh, I still have kids on the land bar. It's August. <laughs> this is not good. I am tired of, I'm tired of washing land bars, you know? So, you know, I think you've got to factor that in there too. How, how much um, mental and physical time do you, are you going to put into breeding those late kids? If that's what it takes to get that dough to freshen as a milking yearling instead of keeping her dry. Oh, Laura, that's when you need to start pan feeding because that just makes your life so much easier. Uh, my kids, my kids still get the milk that's pasteurized and it's watered down and they still come up to the feeder and eat this time of the year in, in October. But that's just because they're, they're spoiled babies. <laughs> you may, you may convince me on that yet. I, I, it, it may happen. It, so, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to ask Dr. Ed, cause he is doing something a little different than when I was growing up there at the farm was we always had the dry yearlings out at a separate pen and there were always their separate pen there. And a funny story real quick. One day we were taking pictures of dry yearlings and my brothers were getting the goats together and we're taking pictures of the dry yearlings. And all of a sudden I'm snapping pictures. I'm snapping like six there and the two are fighting in the background. So we've got this whole picture scene of these two fighting within pictures. And when you scroll through them all there um, and, and it just, it's just very, it was very, very interesting and a very funny moment there watching us picture dry yearlings, but they were always in a separate pen than where the milking yearlings were. What, 
now you're running them together. Why are you running them together? And did you, you are you finding it more effective in order to run them together um, from a growth perspective? Well, so we've had the dry yearlings live with the yearling milkers and the two-year-olds. And that has been very effective because we have a different um, barn configuration now. But interestingly enough, Cameron, you bring this up. When I was gone to the convention because I had this new chore person helping and I didn't want him to have to deal with the dry yearlings getting in and out, I took the four dry yearlings and I put them in with the kids. And so they've been living with the kids now. And when I came back home, I put them back in and then I had some breedings to do. And so I swapped them and put them back there. And I actually really like all of those, the four dry yearlings living with those kids. And the reason I like that is because even as I start drying off the does, I can bring the does in to eat and I've got just enough that it's two groups of eight. And so life is really easy. And so those dry yearlings and those kids are living together and then they get um, the, the grain fed to them when they get the grain. And I don't, I don't feed a a ton of grain. Like, um, you know, there's there, I guess there's um, 15 in that pen now with the four dry yearlings and I've got 11 kids. And so um, there's plenty of spots for them to come up and eat. I get a bucket of grain for all of them each day in the morning. Um, and then, of course, they get they get the milk, too. And some of the dry yearlings still drink some of the milk, too. Um, but that that has, has worked pretty effectively. And as those does get bred, it's just I've kind of liked having them over there now. And would you say that? has helped with their growth and development. And I just feel like in previous years, they lived in a pen by themselves. They kind of got neglected and they kind of got fat. Does that make sense? Yeah. I I feel like they're not as neglected now. Um, I I feel like, you know, they're, they're, I feel like they're, they're, they're getting the the best care possible. And that's why I kind of like having them in with the kids it's kind of a weird thing though, because our kids this year, I, I, and I don't have a reason why it have grown so well. Um, so having those kids in there with, I mean, we've got, we've got a couple of kids in there that are almost as big as the dry yearlings. And so having them all in there together has really not, they don't fight or anything. They all seem to get along. And so I'm like, I'm just going to keep doing this. It seems to be working um, pretty effectively. So we'll have to see as the, as we get closer to that final test uh, for the year with our, our milk test, we'll see if I break down and move those dry yearlings back. But right now, it seems to be working pretty effectively. I wanted to touch back on something you mentioned that you said that you don't have a way tape. So, you know, when you're thinking about breeding your kids, you it sounds to me like you don't go by that old school of, I think it was seven months or 70 pounds or you know, to breed them. Um, is it just a feel, a gut instinct? You just look at them and say, no, I think you're fine. Um, you know, what, what is your art of deciding that they're ready if you're not? Yeah. So some of it's, the yeah, some of it's the feel, some of it's the feel there, but I also like to break it up into different months. So we had our first group of, of kids actually bred this, this week here. Um, and you know, it's October, so they'll be, they'll freshen in, in late, later March there. And for me, it's all about not only looking at the size of the skeletal growth, but also looking at the leg bones. And I don't like to look at leg bones that are like paper thin, if that makes sense there. I'm really big on like really good bone structure, which I, I really think is a, is what happened when I was working with my dad breeding sables. And, you know, we really tried to focus on bone structure, bone structure, bone structure, and getting more bone in those goats. So now applying that to the Toggenbergs, and I think about the Toggenbergs is I'm always looking at width of that kind of those, those leg bones there, if that makes sense, kind of how round they are, how rotund they are to determine if I'm going to breed them or not. And then the next thing I look at, and which helps me kind of decide on how, when we're going to breed them is how big are they? Or when we measure them just with our eyes um, at, at the withers there, how tall are they are at the withers. And I've gotten um, some of some of them out and compared them to the yearlings and try to looking at, okay, as for the yearling is my base. What do I need to do in order to get it to there there? And then there's some of them that I think, okay, the, knowing these lines, they're going to grow up when they, um, when they, 
get pregnant. So I kind of use that to determine it as well. But I really think it's, again, it's kind of eyeing them up with what your yearlings look like because you don't really have, you know, if you're not using a weigh tape or a, a measuring device there, uh, you don't really have a great way to contextual or, you know, put pen to paper on that or know what value that is. So using something contextually also really helps. Very interesting. So, so it sounds to me like you're also saying you really kind of have to know your lines because there are some lines that you probably know are not going to be a great candidate to freshen as a yearling. That doesn't mean they're not a good goat. It just means that they need a little bit more time. Would you agree with that? Correct. I, I think that's really important in knowing your lines there. Uh, and it's not just on the dam side. Yeah, that she's going to look mostly like her mom there and the lines are going to kind of mature like their mom there. But also understanding what the sire side looks like as well is really important and understanding that and kind of saying, hey, I've seen, you know, and I'll take this for example, we bought a buck from a herd in California and this buck in California, we understand that, you know, the all of the dry yearlings that you know do well at the national show and show well at the california state fair they all kind of look like this and have this style and there's a reason obviously why this breeder is keeping them dry so i picked out actually one that you know is probably big enough to breed um but the idea is it's kind of that same style that that breeder is doing as well um and kind of saying hey that's the style of goat that that does well as a dry yearling for this breeder so let's try it here as well Similarly, um, you know, I, I think about we we really um, sold our alpines down pretty slim this year and just kept four alpine kids, and then we we purchased one here this fall. And so my two junior kids um, and the one that we just purchased, looking at the three of them, trying to decide one of these three has to be bred because I'm not keeping more than two dry yearlings, and you know. <laughs> It's it's kind of a hard thing. Like the one kid, I know she needs to be dry. She reminds me a lot of uh, my dry yearling that did so well this year. And she's actually a half-sister. And I just know that she's the right doe to keep dry. Um, I also don't love her front legs. And and so I, I – and when I say that, I mean I wish she could be just a, a, a little bit wider. And I don't know if that, that added growth will help those legs um, adjust because I saw that happen with a dry yearling last year. So that's, again, knowing the lines and looking at what you have. The other doe has these really long legs on her. Um, she's a little more refined. And so keeping her dry, I just wonder if, um, you know, down the line, she'll just kind of pick up and grow and be just this real tall dry yearling because she appears like it. So I've toyed with breeding her. And then there's the doe that we just brought into the herd, and she's kind of at a disadvantage because while she's a little bit taller than those uh, junior kids, she doesn't have the weight on her because obviously she's adapting to living here. So I had said to Cameron after I got her home, well, maybe we should keep her dry. Um, but then like today she was in heat and I was thinking, well, I'm not ready to breed her yet, but maybe the next go around cycle I'll breed her. Um so again, it, it really is waiting till we get to November to see what those those does look like, um, and and knowing a little bit about them. And and to be honest with you, that doe I bought, I really want to see her fresh um, because I know what my other two does are going to look like when they freshen because I know their pedigrees and I know um, you know what what the what the sires do. Um, she, on the other hand, I'm, I I don't I don't know. So I, I'd like to, I'd like to really, really see what she looks like. So I, th I think that's also part of what you go through in, in, in your mindset. I think that's a great point to bring up, Ed, because, um, you know, thinking about our listeners that maybe are newer to dairy goats, don't have a lot of experience, have never even, you know, they, they might think, well, how do I, how do I know? How do I know if this is a good candidate or not? Because I don't really know my lines yet. My advice would always be go ahead and freshen them. If you don't know, just do it. Unless you, unless the breeder of that animal says, I never freshen yearlings and this is why, and this is a good reason. I would say if you have any question on whether or not this animal is going to turn out, go ahead and breed it. One thing that always pops into my mind when I look at goats is I look at two things in order if they're going to be a, 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 very, a very competitive dry yearling here. Are the rumps good and do they use their back legs well? 
do they walk with a lot of width between the hocks? Because if your dry yearling is is a, a, a fire starter, for lack of a better terms, or not walking with a lot of width between the hocks, then then they're not going to be as competitive as other dry yearlings in the ring. Also, if they have a slopey rump, they're not going to be as competitive as, as those in the ring as well. So those are two traits that I always evaluate in my kids when I think about dry yearlings because I know I want to show them next year. Uh, additionally, you'll be able to see these animals faster and, and, and really determine what the udder looks like if you want to retain them or not. Because those are two traits that are, are really important to me is how they use their back legs and how their rump looks. So that that's just really important to consider as well as when you're evaluating animals to keep dry or not. So I have a question to throw out to both of you because, you know, you, you have been on test a lot longer than I have, and you've seen this over the years. Do you feel like that production-wise over the lifetime of a doe, it matters if she freshens as a yearling versus keeping her as, as a dry yearling? I, 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 th- I again, I think that's wholly um, reliant on what their lines are. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've had first freshening two-year-olds, um, milk 3000 pounds. Um, and then I've had some that milked 1800 pounds. I mean, uh, it, it, it just really varies, uh, depending on what your lines are. And so I don't know that there's, again, I think you have to know what you have, what, what you have. And, um, we have a a three-year-old Sable who, um, was a dry yearling only because she didn't take that first year. And then it was the, it was the pandemic year. And so we only got to one show and she got her dry leg and, and then she freshened and she, like I said, she milked 3000 pounds, um, uh, uh, pretty, pretty handily as, as a first freshener. And so I know that can happen. And I know on the other hand, you know, uh, we, we had a first freshener this year. I think she's projected out at about, 2100 pounds and boy i'd like to see her with a bigger udder but she's got everything she needs and so you just say i'm willing to wait so sometimes that's one of the things i think you have to be prepared for you may have a doe that you freshen as a yearling and you know what she looks like then and you know that you're, you're going to keep her and and you're prepared for how she's going to mature a two-year-old first freshener who, with a little smaller udder i think you have to tell yourself you know what do i see there what do i know about her family um, and, and I, the, the dough that we have, I know what her family looks like. So I'm perfectly willing to wait till next year to see. I think one thing that I, I think about here is that udder is going to get so are supposed to get again, supposed to all hypothetically here for the most part, get so much bigger in that second freshening there. And sometimes those goats that freshen as yearlings, they they're milking so much there and they need that dry off period in order to grow up. But in a lot of situations, and maybe it's just because I've spent, you know, the last two weekends visiting with two commercial producers is sometimes that dry off period isn't enough though. If you're milking a true 305 lactation in order to add that good skeletal growth. So goats that are incredibly productive animals as, as yearlings or two-year-olds there, you know, they're not going to be able to add skeletal growth all the way into that second second freshening there if they're not properly dried off. And this is all my opinion here. But also I think about a doe that I recently saw at a show um, of a good friend of all three of ours. And she, I was looking at her website and she's like, I'm looking at a milk through for this goat. And it makes perfect sense to me because the goat is milking so much. And if it were to continue to have another freshening there, um, it would just, it would, in my mind, it would just really kind of, the udder would be a, a changed a little bit there. So I, I think it's a good decision to have, um, but just things to consider and thoughts there. So on that note, um, you know, I think we all hear people who will say sometimes, oh, I shouldn't have freshened her as a yearling. It just really took too much out of her. And you'll see things like um, rolled over feet or bowed front legs or, you know, um, uh, the goat is all udder and no body at all. Um, what do you say about those kind of situations? Milk them through, give them a longer dry off, um, or just know in the back of your mind, maybe this is a line that shouldn't be freshened as a yearling. Well, we have a, we have a yearling mocha this year that had triplets as a yearling. And the one thing I would say about her is 
Um, it really affected her dorsal process is, is much more defined. Her rump is a little steeper than I would, I, I, I would like. Um, but I will tell you that when she cycled early in September, she was one of the first goats I bred and I bred her. And as soon as like she had been passed over 21 days, I just noticed that her production has, has decreased a lot. And as that production has decreased, boy, her body is just taken off and she looks like a different goat. The dorsal process is, is less defined. Um, the rump looks great. Um, I, I, I know that that's a really good point that Cameron makes in that you want to make sure those goats that didn't get that, maybe had a rougher kidding or was were milking a lot, that they are given the opportunity to kind of grow and get themselves back into place and reset, I will call it, in order to freshen and, and do the things that they need to do next year. And sometimes that reset might happen actually during the lactation. It happens, and I, I've seen it happen before, where the goat was freshened very early in their life to an accident of the breeder there. And then what specifically happened is she wasn't really milking very much, but her body kind of figured it out during the lactation and kind of put the pieces together there. And she really uh, matured as, as she was freshening there. Was it ideal? Absolutely not. But there are some animals and some lines that will put all the pieces together as they're milking, but they can't be pushing for heavy production there. And they can't be in an environment, in my mind, that that it, it is a big production environment and puts a lot of pressure on yearlings to succeed because she would probably be a cold doe in most commercial herds. Oh, that makes sense. So as so kind of kind of as a kind of heading towards a wrap up here. Um, you guys are both judges and actively judging and have judged all kinds of sizes of shows all across the country. Um, do you feel like um, it's a detriment to a doe to have one fewer freshening than uh, the other does in her class? For example, like you go into a two-year-old milker class and you obviously have some first fresheners and you have some that are on their second lactation. Is this something that is uh, a big thing in the mind of judges? And um, along with that, then, does that carry through to the older age classes as well? Because judges still continue to ask three-year-olds, four-year-olds, age does, how many freshenings has this doe had? Um, so I'm kind of curious on your thoughts on that. Laura, you're opening a can of worms here. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I and I, I would be surprised if Cameron wouldn't answer this question the same way. When, when I evaluate a goat, I'm evaluating the best goat per the scorecard. Um, you certainly want the goat to have a, a lot of productivity, but the problem is that you can't completely weigh on how that goat, how many freshenings she's had. Um, when they get to be, um, seven-year-olds and they've had six freshenings. Again, in my mind, six freshenings or seven freshenings, it, it's not going to make a lot of difference. It does make a difference for judges in that, that first freshener or second freshener in the two-year-old class. But again, if I'm evaluating the goats, I sh I'm sure I put up just as many does that are first fresheners as I put up um, second fresheners. And the other thing I want to say about that is, and I was thinking about this as you were talking about it, when you judge a lot of shows, the one thing that I don't see is I don't see the yearly milker class being that full. A lot of people are keeping their does dry, which is, is again, your prerogative. You've got to do what works for you. But realize that you it, your evaluation of that good as a two-year-old is going to be different than it would be as them as a yearling. And so I think it's important to remember that. Um, Again, you're focusing on who's the best goat based on the scorecard. I agree. I, I agree with that. But I'll, I agree with that. But I want to take it a little different direction here. I think it's very apparent when you judge Nigerian dwarf two-year-olds on who was a dry yearling and who was a yearling milker there. Those does, and again, I'm going to generalize here. Those does that are that were yearling milkers tend to be a little more dairy. 
a little bit less fluffy um, in, in their size and scale there. And they might be a little smaller, but again, that's okay for Nigerian dwarf breeders here. Additionally, their mammary systems might be just a little bit more productive um, and, and their teat placement might be a little better as well there. So I, I have just found that, that there are subtle things that you can tell that just thinking about the Nigerian dwarfs there. But when it comes to the overall evaluation of the animal, the biggest difference of when you notice kind of a first lactation versus a second lactation versus a third and so on there is when the mammary system milks down. And you are not going to know that as a judge until you're in a best in show lineup. But but there is definitely an appearance or a difference in utter texture and how well that animal milks down, especially defining where the utter attachment is versus where the utter um, where it should be full there um, instead of that. So, again, I think that's the biggest thing. But unfortunately, you're not going to know that in a regular class until you unless you're asked to ever milk down in a class, which. I have never seen done nor done as a judge. What else do we want to touch on guys? Last thing I want to touch on real quick here is, is when you see animals with issues and I think to some of, and I go back a little bit in our La Mancha days here, when you saw animals with maybe bowed leg, front, front legs because they're carrying a, a lot of weight in that front end assembly there on, on, on that there and, Catherine and I literally just talked about it with one of our friends today here where they were carrying the kids so low and that put a lot of pressure on that front end assembly and it caused them to wing shoulders out there. Can you do anything or have you guys tried anything um, when, when animals have, have, you know, carrying a lot of kids and they look like they need a little extra boost? I know that we've used Dine in our herd just to, you know, if, if, if they look like that they're having some issues getting enough calories in their system that, you know, everything's going to the baby and not so much to the mom. Um, I've, I guess we've seen that more in older animals that maybe are having a difficult time keeping up um, their own body condition versus younger animals. But we've also seen it in younger animals too. Those ones that, that you can just look at until they're carrying triplets or quads. I think we've seen it and Cameron mentioned the Lamanches, but that was primarily a leg issue that we'd sometimes see, um, the Lamanches really bow their legs either in or out um, during pregnancy. Um, and that can happen as, as yearlings, it, but it can happen as, as older goats too. But we saw it happen quite a bit. And that was just a matter of after they freshened, we really put them on a regiment of, of vitamins and, and we were able to, to bring them back. We did have an Alpine doe a couple of years ago that um, got really bowed during pregnancy and, it was to the point where there was no way that you, you could bring these back. And it was kind of a, kind of a baffling situation. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it for a while um, like this, but um, you know, those are, those are some things that happen. I, 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 again, when we bred her, we didn't have any idea that that would be um, an issue. And so um, you just, you have to be prepared for those kind of things because those are going to happen. I, I think, as um, we're finishing up, I think the most important thing about uh, deciding whether or not you're keeping a doe dry or you're going to breed her is really up to the individual. There are 4-H families out there that they don't have enough goats to make this determination to to decide between three goats, which one they're going to leave dry and which one they're going to be. They just keep the one goat that they have dry and that, that's perfectly acceptable. Um I, I know you just, you, you do that. And I, and I think that's the beauty. You can show a goat a year longer. Um, I don't always think it's a great idea when people say, well, she was such a great kid that I'm going to keep her dry. You know, she won a lot as a kid. So I'm going to keep her dry because I have sometimes seen dry yearlings that come back and that's not, you know, necessarily, it was not necessarily in the best interest for them. But I, I think you have to come up with what works for you and your herd and you have to know your goats pretty well. In your lines. Yeah, I don't think people should ever be afraid to try freshening and then and, and I've talked with some herds that will say we never freshen yearlings. And and I would say give it a try. It may be something that you you know that you'd like to like to see how that turns out and see if that works for you. But but I agree, there are lots of right answers here. I don't think that there's a one size fits all approach for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just hoping that we gave you some thoughts, some considerations, some some tips and tools in order for to help you decide 
which one of your goats is 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 suitable to be a dry yearling well which ones might be best to freshen because uh, I, I think Dr. Ed said it best in which um, that yearling class and a lot of breeds is very small milking yearling class is very small with that dry yearling class and a lot of breeds that might be the biggest class of the day um as always we thank you for spending this time with us Dr. Ed we are so thrilled to have had you on again well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcast, Google Podcasts as well. We are available on the Facebook as well there um, and lots of good stuff. Uh, Dr. Ed, I wanted to point out that I think you are the number one recurring guest on Goat Gab unless um, Dr. Uh, Taylor is in the background somewhere. So thank you for being our number is, one guest. Is there a prize that I get for that? I'll get you a nice sure. that. Or <laughs> next next week we will come down and ultrasound some goats. That sounds that sounds amazing. That would be a great prize to have. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all for being our listeners. And um, you know, we we do value your feedback. So don't be afraid to tell us what you'd like to see, what you'd like to hear. Um if there's some topics that you have in mind for us, we're really excited to be back on a weekly basis again. So um, we hope you all have a great week and thank you for being here.